0: You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down, or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart, And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Uh, Rich, um, would you mind opening us up in prayer as we start?
1: Sure, yeah. Thanks, mate. Lord, thank you for the gift of technology where we can gather in this way and we ask that you would uh, open us up to the ways of your spirit and so uh, grant us grace and uh, wisdom and may we be sensitive to the ways you long to speak to us this evening or wherever we're gathering from whatever time of day it is Uh, we offer this time to you in christ's name amen
2: amen amen and the voice that you hear is uh Rich Viotas, he is the Brooklyn-born lead pastor of New Life Fellowship. It's a large multiracial church with more than 75 countries represented in Elmhurst, Queens. Rich holds an MDiv from Alliance Theological Seminary. He enjoys reading widely, preaching and writing on contemplative spirituality, justice-related matters, and the art of preaching. He's been married to Rosie since 2006, and they have two beautiful children, Karis and Nathan. And his first book, The Deeply Formed Life, is now available pretty much anywhere books are sold. And so we're just so grateful to have you with us here on Inverse Podcast. Rich, welcome to the conversation.
1: So good to be here. Look forward to uh, just a good time with you guys.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And um as a pastor, um, I know you are um, just always soaked in thinking with passages and texts in mind, but I'm curious um, if you have a passage for us that you could just read for us that maybe has the potential to turn this world upside down. What, what, what passage have you picked for us?
1: Yeah, uh, it's, it's a passage I've been wrestling with over the past uh, couple of weeks and more specifically the past few days. So it's it's out of Romans. It's Romans 6. And uh, it's Paul, uh, 6, 3 and 4, where Paul says, uh, don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So I I think there's lots of potential for uh, the world being turned upside down through those two passages there.
0: Amen, amen. Yeah, Rich, we're looking forward to exploring that with you. Um, We have a firm conviction that um, biography is theology. And uh, I've this week just finished um, uh, your beautiful new offering uh, to the world in the deeply formed life. And so I I think I know some of the answers that um, uh, you share um, there. But we'd love to hear when do you first remember encountering the Bible? Um, You you have permission to answer that. Um, Any part of your story, you (laughs) please.
1: You know, it's interesting. I I feel like I was surrounded by the Bible all the time, but never found my way into it uh, in that my I did not grow up in a Christian home. Uh, My parents were quite indifferent towards Christianity, but uh, at a very early age, they sent me to church with my grandfather who lived down the block my two aunts who lived down the block uh in Brooklyn so Puerto Rican family I mean within two blocks we probably had 25 family members and so I didn't need any friends growing up I had plenty of cousins and we would find our way in church especially when uh, mom or dad wanted a break and because it was a Latino Pentecostal church um you get good child care Uh, because those services are four hours five (laughs) hours long and so you get groceries done laundry watch a movie and so my parents gladly sent me to that Pentecostal church and my aunt Lydia would typically be the bible school teacher or my aunt Minerva would be the bible school teacher and so I would attend these churches uh and and but by the time I was about 12 I stopped attending church I didn't want to go anymore asked my parents if I could stop attending they said yes it was like i was saved at that moment saved from the church and then found myself back in the church as a 17 year old because i started dating a pastor's daughter and that will get you into church very quickly yes, and will. so because he said the only way you can date my daughter is if you come and so i i said i'm there pastor i'll be there uh, he didn't say what time and so at the end uh, at the end of a service i'd sneak into the back of this assemblies of god church in queens And uh, he'd ask, how was the sermon? I'd say, fantastic. What was it about? You know, like Jesus, because it was assemblies of God, lots of sin. So sin, you know, hell, um, the spirit. And after that relationship came to an end, uh, as about a 19-year-old, I found myself walking home from Queens to Brooklyn, very depressed, a good hour and a half walk and uh, came home to see my parents who were home, my siblings who were at the church that I would attend with my grandparents and my aunt, my two aunts, and decided to attend church that night as a heartbroken person. And in that night, uh, that's how I came to Christ. Actually, uh, my, my, I walked into the church. They're singing about demons having to flee in the name of Jesus in good Pentecostal fashion and at 5 minutes after i walk in my parents walk in as well to the church they never go to church and my father walked in with sneakers no socks pajama pants a mets jacket a mets hat and uh looking like uh, uh, looking messed up coming in coming off of a hangover and when i left uh, when i when afterwards i would ask him why did you come and he said when you left the house I heard a voice say, follow him. I don't know if it was audible or inaudible, but I decided to Mm. follow you. And in that night, the preacher got up, Puerto Rican preacher, alligator shoes, matching alligator belt, flashing. (laughs) And he preached on on Ezekiel 37 about the Valley of Dry Bones Mm. and asked if you want the breath of life to come forward. And uh, one by one, we responded. And so my brother responded, my sister responded, another sister responded, my other sister responded, I responded, my parents responded. Cousins start responding, uncles start responding. And one night in uh, August of 1999, 15 family members came to Christ. And, um, you know, the spirit of God was moving so powerfully, you know, if my, my chihuahua, I had a chihuahua named Milo, if he was there, He would have said, forgive me as well, Lord. That's how deep, powerful the spirit was moving. But it was out of that place where I got introduced really to the Bible because my grandfather who attended that church um, started to lead me in scriptures. And what began to happen, he lived one block down. And usually when I would come to visit him almost every other day, I walk into his bedroom, give him a kiss on the cheek and then walk right out because there was a language barrier. I don't speak much Spanish. She doesn't speak much English. But i remember two weeks after becoming a christian he always had his bible open and i said grandpa um can i ask you some questions about the bible Mm. and so he said, sit down next to me and those conversations um started to happen on a regular basis so that four to five times a a week for two to three hours each time he would mentor me in the scriptures Mm. and part of that was just the language barrier the meetings took so long because i kept saying what are you saying, Grandpa? And he's going, what are you saying? Because of the language barrier. That's why it lasted three hours. But we did that for eight months. And uh, and then he died because he was very ill. Mm-hmm. And for those eight months, I was introduced to the world of the Bible. I was introduced mm-hmm. to a love for uh, the Holy Trinity, uh, a love for scripture, a love for holiness, uh, a love for... Um, Uh, mercy and compassion and justice and so that's when i really encountered the bible as a 19 year old sitting shoulder to shoulder with my grandfather four to five times each week for two to three hours each time
0: Mm. and
1: um i haven't you know that that was that was my entry into the world of following christ and
2: entry into the scriptures wow that's powerful that's really powerful yeah and you know it was interesting as you were telling your story especially as you mentioned the ezekiel 37 i don't know what you rich and jared think but i was like I don't think I've ever heard that passage butchered,
0: right? Um, <laughs> I don't know if it's
2: just that passage, by nature <laughs> of the very text itself. It yeah. cannot be butchered, right?
0: But, um,
1: <laughs> you read it and people start falling
2: out. <laughs> That's, start right. Falling out. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but, um, but I'm really curious about your, um, as you're encountering, um, this, this sacred word, this Bible, these scriptures, these ancient texts, whether you're thinking about it in that way or not, uh, are you experiencing them as liberative, as oppressive, as something else? How are you interacting um, with these texts and, and how is it um, impacting you?
1: Uh, am I those early stages for me or just- mm-hmm. uh, It can be early
2: yeah. stage and if you wanna unpack is that if there's shifts.
1: Yeah, you know, early on, um, what, what I, I experienced it as a, a liberative text because and a healing text
0: because
1: mm-hmm. my grandfather was really on his deathbed for the past, you know, for the seven months that uh, I was sitting side by side with him, and and every every week I'd see him, he'd lose more weight, and he was a strong man who was just um, whittled down to. Uh, such frailty and it got to a point where we couldn't sit shoulder to shoulder anymore Uh, he had to lay down lie down on his bed and I would lie next to him Hmm. and for the last two weeks um, the only thing he would ask me to do was to read him scripture passages and so I'd sit next to him for it wasn't two to three hours anymore it was usually just an hour and I'd lay down lie down next to him and and I'd say, um, he'd say, read me something from Paul. And I'd read him something from Paul and he'd smile. Hmm. And he'd go, read me something from David, from the Psalms. And now, again, this is new to me. So I'm going, where's the book of Psalms? You know, I mean, <laughs> Lord, they got with the table of contents, you know. Right. And I'd read him <laughs> a Psalm and he'd smile. And I'd do that for about an hour straight for two weeks before he died. Hmm. And so the um, my first encounter with the Bible was that, it is a healing text. It's a healing Mm. story. Mm. Uh, his smile every time I would finish reading a passage reminded me, this is what the Bible's for Mm. the Bible's for the sake of healing and freedom and liberation and consolation. Mm. Uh, and so, and I don't know if that ever changed in me. Um, you know, I, uh, going to seminary and, you know, being exposed to, uh, higher critical readings of scripture, even though I was now immersing myself in that world of uh, biblical criticism and such. For whatever reason, that was such a deposit in me in the first few months of my conversion that I never could get away from the Bible as a healing text. Now, I mean, uh, and and to this day, I mean, I, I, I experienced the Bible as a liberating text uh, because I, it, it reveals a God who refuses to exist without humanity, mm-hmm. you know, and in and, and the words of Karl Barth, you know, God doesn't wanna be God without us. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what we find in the scriptures is this unrelenting God, the unrelenting heart of God uh, to form of people in the way of freedom and liberation. Uh, And so, you know, this is the Ten Commandments, you know, God Mm. offers the Ten Commandments not to uh, save the people of God, but to show them what free people look like. Um, And this is the words of the prophets. This is uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And so uh, from my early stages and even in my readings of today, for me, it's if the Bible is not being seen in healing ways, uh, I, I don't know if we're reading the Bible um as it's intended to be read uh that said i mean i, I see how easily the, the bible has become oppressive you know i, I think of the, the words of of desmond tutu and he talks about you know when the missionaries came to africa they had the bible and we had the land and when they then they said let us pray right. and we opened our eyes and we had the bible and they had the land and so i i, I <laughs> recognize the oppressive nature of of the scriptures um but uh, and I recognize that the Bible is used in those ways overtly, oppressively, but, but also the, the Bible is used in a way where um, we have been so fixated on being faithful to the text that we are not actually immersing ourselves in the story. And so um, I, I think of, uh, of getting the text right, you know, I think in the 1960s, James Cone would say, you know, while while the church were debate was debating whether Jonah was swallowed by a whale, uh, right. you know the state was enacting inhuman laws against the oppressed. Yeah. And so, um, while we're navigating exegesis here, we're not finding ourselves living this story out in the real world. And so, in that way, I think the Bible can be o- overtly oppressive, but also insidiously oppressive, yeah. and w- as well by what we refuse to give ourselves to. But, um, but I'm grateful for the deposit in the seeds that were sown early on for my grandfather to see it as a healing text.
0: Mm. Yeah, Rich, to, to stay with um, Dr. Cohn and just a, a few paragraphs over from uh, that particular passage you quoted, he, he brings in uh, the context of the different questions you ask um, around uh, transubstantiation. Um, in the 16th century versus if your reality is under a whip um, mm. and uh, are picking cotton and the kind of questions that come forth about God's presence in that reality. And this mm. next question is really, um, it, it's an opportunity for people to uh, uh, reflect on their own lens, their own experience, um, uh, their own location, and um, the, the gift that that is to others. If, if you were to, um, at this stage of your life after being involved in pastoral ministry for um, your adult life to reflect back on your location in the global church in this moment, what particular gifts have you been made aware of that have come out of um, uh, the interesting cross-pollination that is your story and influence and context?
1: Yeah, when, when I think about my own story, Um, You know, I grew up in East New York, Brooklyn, which Mm. uh, in the 80s and 90s was uh, known as the epicenter of um, not just uh, violence and drugs, but it it was the place where people were overlooked, under-resourced, and so I was accustomed to uh, being on the margins of society economically uh, in terms of the disorientation of of violence, um, uh, of people who are have deep economic needs. Um, and so I don't know if I could ever shape uh, shake that, uh, of how I read the scriptures and how I come to the scriptures. And so um, being around people who were often economically and socially powerless, but had a deep spirituality uh, has shaped my engagement of the scriptures uh, in such a way that, um, you know, I, the, you know, the the hermeneutical advantage of the poor Mm -hmm. um, is something I take very seriously. um, Because I've been around and have been very poor. And there's something about people who are um, socially or economically marginalized, they're able to see the text in ways that privileged people cannot. uh, Because the text is written from that particular space. And so that hermeneutics of uh, social powerlessness and economic um, neediness, um, the Psalms make sense to me and made sense to me very early on. Um, the, the, The Gospels and the teachings of Jesus make sense very early on. And how that's carried me as a preacher and as a pastor throughout the years, I mean, Uh, Bonhoeffer is someone that I've looked to over the years significantly. And Mm -hmm. I remember reading letters and papers from prison and him talking about learning to see the great events from world history, of world history from below. That's right. From from the perspective of the outcast and the powerless and the mistreated, Um, which is why um, when I come to a text and when I try to look at the issues of our particular day, The first question I'm asking myself is, how are people who have been socially disadvantaged? uh, How are they? What's the word for them? Um, And so, my my first, you know, look at what happened at the Capitol last week. uh, Yeah. You know, my first thinking is, how are how are Black men and women experiencing this moment? What's the text say to them? What's this sermon I'm going to preach on Sunday say to them? Um, so that's, I, I don't know if I could shake that. And I recognize the social location I come from. I recognize mm. the uh, the limited perspective, the local narrative that I carry. And I think that's okay. Uh, we all bring our local narratives uh, to try to understand the sweeping narrative of God's presence in and among uh, his creation. But uh, I, I think that Bonhoeffer, that my grandfather, the growing up in Brooklyn, I think those have all shaped uh, the way I come to the scriptures and how I see the scriptures and desire to preach out of those scriptures.
2: Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I, I resonate. And I really appreciate um, just uh, the way that you um, just share about how your experience has shaped how you read the texts, um, what questions you're bringing as you're reading the text. And, and I wish, or I invite you now to, um, in some ways maybe model that for us. Can you walk us through this Romans chapter six, uh, what is it, verses three and four, and and kind of let's dwell in this together and have a conversation. Can you lead us in, in, in a conversation around this passage?
1: Yeah, I, I think this passage is, um, important for the moment we're in because um, it it is the essence of Christian identity and mission Mm. and what it means to follow Christ faithfully in this world. And Paul is using language of, you know, he's talking about baptism and uh, there's so many different uh, understandings of what baptism is. It's washing, it's converge, it's conversion. But, you know, at its core it's allegiance it's Mm -hmm. who do i belong to yeah and um which is why whenever we baptize people at new life like many other churches do we we ask two questions of the baptismal candidates where we say do you confess christ as lord and savior and do you reject satan and all of his lies uh thankfully everyone has said yes to those questions uh uh, before we'd it be really awkward if we go, you know, they're still thinking about it. You know, it's like, <laughs> uh, and so. Uh, but if, if
0: this last like, week in America <laughs> makes anything um, uh, clear, Rich, there there seems to be a way um, that some people think they can answer yes to one and no to yeah, the, the second. Yeah, there there right. it is.
1: That, right. That'll preach for this Sunday here. So, uh, <laughs> uh, and so it, it is language of of allegiance. Uh, who who do you belong to? You know, I'm, I'm reminded. Um, some years ago I, I go to a monastery every year in the Boston area to pray with some Trappist monks for three to four days at a time, waking up at three o'clock in the morning in an ungodly hour and i um, praying the Psalms with them five, six times a day. And I remember this was early on, this was maybe 2007, some 13, 14 years ago or so, where it's my first trip. And uh, again, I come from a Pentecostal tradition. So uh Early on, I was quite skeptical of Catholic things and high liturgy and all that. But I went to this monastery and um, saw the basin of holy water at the entrance to the sanctuary and saw everyone placing their finger in and genuflecting and all that. I was I was nervous. Somebody's behind me. What am I going to do? I, I Dip my finger in way too much. It was a mess. Uh, went into the service, <laughs> read the Psalms, came out. And 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 then I remember having a conversation with one of the monks there, Father William. And I was just sitting down, I had about an hour with him just to ask him questions about life in the monastery. And I just said, you know, when you leave the sanctuary or enter in and you dip your finger in the water, what what's going on there? And, um, and he said very simply, which for people who have high liturgy it just comes naturally. And of course it's, but for those who are Latino Pentecostal, this is, I don't even know if these people are saved that, you know, at some point. <laughs> and so um, I what's going on? And he goes, well, that water reminds you of your baptism and your baptism reminds you that you belong to Jesus. And, um, and so we need to be reminded on a regular basis that we belong to Jesus Christ. And um, this is what Paul is getting at. Paul is getting at, you have died with Christ. You are raised with him. There's a new allegiance. There's a new life. There's a new participation. This is language of union. This is language of communion. This is language of washing, conversion, allegiance. And in saying yes to Christ, we're giving and stating an unequivocal no to the world and to the world system. And so this passage is important for me in light of, current moment we're in especially in the u.s especially with what happened in the Capitol last week because i do believe there are many forces at work trying to claim our allegiance and you know this past sunday i talked about the various ways uh that the world tries to claim our allegiance and i i I listed some of these five dangers to our baptism Mm. and um in, in nice preacher fashion, they all start with the letter C. Good alliteration. I was breaking my breaking my <laughs> back on Saturday. Lord, give me one more C, Lord. Come on, Lord. And, uh, and, and 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 you know it is, you know the five that I list are, you know conflation of party or personality with Christ,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: um, uh, conspiracy theories, mm. charismatic prophecies, of which, again, I'm a Pentecostal charismatic mm-hmm. in my tradition but it's just a danger to our baptism and how it's being wielded yeah. uh, cable news discipleship and this Ooh. conspicuous or corrosive racism. Mm-hmm. And I, I find, I see those five areas and this comes out of my pastoral context because this is what I've been seeing, but it, for me, it's an urgent call to who do we belong to. And all five of those areas are a danger to our baptism because in one way or another, it's trying to claim us, and have us give our allegiance to something other than Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. and um, and so that's why I think this passage is really important for our day.
2: Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, it reminds me um, when I I think about um, like when they talk about early Christians and the um, catechism process that they underwent, mm-hmm. and um, just the emphasis that's made around you know it's not just belief that they're converting into or behavior, but also belonging, which is that allegiance, Mm. right? Mm. Um, And and that they were preparing them even before baptism for the fact that there's this new belonging coming, right? Mm. Um, And I think that um, as you talk about this, all these other things that wanna claim our allegiance, um, that that it, it, it doesn't seem like the kind of discipleship and formation going on in most churches have the capacity or even the intention to disrupt that kind of claim on our lives yeah yeah
1: which is it's interesting you say that Drew, because i've been thinking more and more about uh you know early church catechism and how long it would often take for someone to get baptized and 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 i get the, the the texts and acts where you know there's some water right there let me get baptized all right here you go Uh, And I see why the church made some shifts in terms of prolonging that initial stage before someone gets baptized. And I get it. And I, I, and the, I joke from time to time. It's not really a joke. I really mean it that we should have a sign outside of our congregation that says enter at your own risk Uh, because we're going to invite you to follow Christ and live and show up in this world in ways that, you might not uh, be ready for, and um, I, I often live under the pressure of evangelical guilt that not more people are being baptized. You know, it's it's very interesting. You know, how many how many got baptized? And I feel like man, so many people getting baptized in that church. Uh, uh, now are they resisting the powers and principalities of our world i don't know but they're getting baptized and, <laughs>
2: they're, getting baptized.
1: and, <laughs> and, and they're, they're they're wet uh, i don't uh, but um and i've been really thinking uh especially as we're trying to I mean, we we had a baptism class tonight at new life mm. and uh-huh. i'm just wondering you know what does it look like to prolong that and come back to that catechesis of yeah accounting to co- counting the cost and do you know yeah. what you're getting into and this is not um a trans something just simply transactional this is something that you're giving your life to and i, I do yeah. think that's this is that baptism of paul that he's getting at that this is the allegiance and what it means to, and i don't get it all right at the moment i know i'm going to be growing and following christ and learning new things as i go but um this is about allegiance not simply a decision
0: Rich, I'd be interested to hear how much you think um, uh, U.S. Christianity, which uh, no doubt is uh, gone global, right? Um, uh, I sometimes uh, tell people that um, I, I was formed in U.S. Christianity like years before I ever visited the place. Like it, It's just <laughs> a reality of um, a global consumer Christian culture, right? Um Community uh, but, spread
1: happens everywhere with you.
0: Except, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, super spreaders. Uh,
1: so,
0: <laughs> I'm so aware that um, uh, like Charles Finney in his kind of technology that he invented of the altar call has for very much for so many Christians in that geographical location, just South of Canada and North of Mexico, replaced baptism. And it's mm-hmm. become um, uh, have you said the sinner's prayer? And yeah. um, people are like, well, it's at the front of my Bible. <laughs> it's printed in the front before you get to the index that you found helpful with your grandpa. Um, and uh, th- there's almost like a, a magical talisman or, or this, uh, um, this incantation that um, uh, the, the kind of thing that Harry Potter would use um, to, to mm-hmm. make a spell work, but the spell is for like salvation. Um, versus what it is to be immersed in a people, a, a people mm-hmm. who um, find themselves and the, the language um, in Romans of being in and with the Messiah um, through the Messiah um, or mm-hmm. um, in Christos um, uh, that has been replaced so often by the, um, uh, the technology of the sinner's prayer, which for Finney was to sign people up to the abolitionist movement and you'd turn people away if you weren't willing to sign up. Yeah. And he was also preaching to people who had forgotten their, their baptism, um, uh, be it as a, an infant or an adult. And he was the, the prayer, the technology of the prayer that was developed was actually to call them back to that and to sign them up mm. to the movement. In this moment where we desperately need um, uh, abolition movements on a number of different fronts um, uh, to to join in that new exodus. I would love to hear you reflect as a pastor on um, how we can recover baptism as that full immersion in Christian identity, in community that um, uh, lives his love and teachings um, uh, and, and the link between, well I, I guess what Paul makes plain here that dying with Christ is that we might live in his resurrection. And uh, I wonder if we have formed people in a sinner's prayer Christianity that neither dies to our old self, nor does it rise to walk in the resurrection. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think that's um,
1: really well said, Jared. And I, I think part of living out that baptism is a and hopefully maybe this sounds a bit simplistic here, but I, I do think it's it is a recovery of what the gospel is. Yeah. And um and how we define the gospel, um, if the gospel is transactional uh, in its nature, if, if it's just a soteriological transaction, if it's just um, uh, something to get you out of your own individual existential angst, uh, the, the go- it's gonna be very limiting in terms of how we find ourselves engaged in the world. Uh, but if the gospel is uh, the good news of that that God's kingdom has come near in Christ and that Mm -hmm. through his life, death, resurrection, and enthronement, the powers and sin and death no longer have the last word. Mm -hmm. That is an expansive now vision of what the gospel is, which now informs the way that I live in the world. And so I I do think this baptism um, call to remember our baptism is in line and in conjunction with our understanding of what the gospel is. And if we can frame the gospel in that way, uh, beyond just, um, I love justification by faith. I mean I, I believe it's uh, beautiful but 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 for me that's not the gospel. Uh, mm-hmm. First of all, Jesus is our gospel. Amen. Um, he is our gospel and it is out of his story, out of his life that we are invited into that level of participation now with him uh, for the renewal of the world. So I, I do think the recovery or the, the reimagination of what the gospel is and as a pastor, this is one of the most important tasks that I have yeah. uh, on a week in and week out basis. I, we have a school of formation where we train um, 15 to 20 leaders each year at our yeah. congregation in uh, various values of our church. And it's remarkable to see um, not just the resistance in some, but the light bulb going up is going on as well when we reframe the gospel in those categories of something that's larger than just a soteriological transaction or a particular atonement theory if it can be seen as that larger story of jesus and what he invites us into i think that will uh, move us towards remembering our baptism in ways that are uh that offer liberation and freedom to the world as opposed to just stamping whatever salvation uh you know, check mark, whatever it is that I need to make a decision. So uh, I, I do think it's the recovery of the gospel though, and what we're, what we mean when we say
2: that word. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I'd, I'd be curious to hear, and I'm sure, you know, we have some um, listeners who are pastors or uh, certainly at least very committed to the life of the church. Um, you want to share a little bit more in terms of like, what is um, your, 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 um, membership or catechism class look like? Um, What are some things that you guys do to form folks? How are you thinking through that? How are you wrestling with it? What are you adapting? And um, and in some ways, right, I I think so much of our work on this side of Christendom, on this side of the Constantinian, you know, church is experimentation to get back to a more meaningful discipleship. So I'm curious how you guys are trying to flesh that out.
1: I think we find ourselves experimenting a lot. And I think what we have gravitated towards is slower, longer. Um uh in, in the sense of in the past, um I'm thinking, all right, let's just get these people in a 30-minute baptism class and uh all right, you know, you know the tenets <laughs> of the faith. All right, all right, all right, let's do the baptism video uh in two weeks, you're up, you know, invite your friends. <laughs> and uh and those things are wonderful. Uh at the same time, one of the things that I noticed um, I, I looked at our kind of church database of who, who was baptized. I did this maybe two years ago. I looked at who was baptized in the previous three years, and I noticed a disturbing trend of people who were baptized who, A, were not part of the church anymore, uh, or, or B, were just in dire straits for whatever reason. Mm. And I, they were either not part of new life, and for me, I'm thinking now. I recognize, in good Pentecostal fashion, uh, I would say, you know, what Jesus got baptized and then he went into the wilderness. So be careful for the temptations of the evil one and all that mm-hmm. there. But that stuff is real. And uh, yeah. and what I found was, I don't think we were doing a good enough job letting them know what they're what they're getting themselves into. Uh, and, you know, is Jesus asking his disciples, you know, can you drink the cup? And, and, and they go, yeah, of course we can drink it. We're, we're, we're just fine. Where's it at? And he goes, you don't understand what I'm getting at. I think that's how, I don't think we've asked people that question. Can you really drink the cup? And this is what the cup entails of baptism. So, um, I, I think what we have discovered and what I'm discovering more and more is the importance of, uh, the slow, the contemplative, and that's a, and that's yeah. a one of our values. I mean one of our monastic contemplative values at new life that things must be slower and more thoughtful and reflective and contemplative. Uh, and so mm. right now we are you know i'm looking to reimagine the length of time that baptism candidates actually um, you know what 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 we're investing into them and what are we asking of them before they go into the waters in terms of not just only their theological formation, but their own spiritual formation. Uh, truly, are you counting the cost here? Uh, but as it stands now, there's a few classes that we give, um, some conversations that we have with pastors uh, after the classes and such, and then helping them to craft their story and as we share it in, in some public context. Uh, but we're, we're looking at extending it much more so that we're helping people to count the cost more effectively.
0: Mm. thank you. Rich, before um, uh, the pandemic um, kind of kicked in and uh, we went into to lockdown, uh, my family transitioned from, um, I was a teaching pastor at a certain uh, church which became uh, a Hillsong campus and um, for a variety of reasons that's another conversation for another time um, in the words of Dylan and um, it ain't me, babe, and um, bless our, our sisters and brothers in, in that world, but we found ourselves exiting. Um, and one of the things that I lamented the most is uh, some of the things that um, as a community we'd moved to in terms of formation, particularly around baptism, uh, that were being lost in, in the life of the community. Um, uh, one of those things um, being... Uh, foot washing is the first act that somebody received on the other side of the waters that um, uh, elders and uh, people who are deeply respected in the community would literally come and wash the feet of the people who um, were drying after coming out of the waters of baptism. And uh, they would say, no longer with a sword, but with this sign, we now conquer. And uh, then the person fresh out of the water, their, their first act after receiving this pattern Um, uh, would be to then turn around and wash the feet of those who are going to actually lead them Mm. in this way that they've just been baptised into. So here's the, um, and uh, that was preparation before we took communion as a community. And for us, it was ways in which we were trying to um, open people's imagination that um, uh, these aren't just, uh, like it, sometimes in charismatic Pentecostal um, circles, uh, there's a danger we take um, these things as quote unquote, an outward sign of an inward thing. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. W- w- we would never re- respond to uh, a wedding invitation by going, well, you know, this is just like a, an outward sign of your inward, like <laughs> we'd never downplay it like that. But for some reason we do that when it comes to these um, uh, deeply, uh, literally mm. immersive symbols. Um I'm aware there's so many that are so hungry for that kind of community, that kind of formation. Yeah. And yet for a variety of reasons, one just being for um, uh, common sense safety at the moment that people can't meet in person. Um, for those who are finding themselves um, uh, physically distanced from others, um, how do we step into a sacramental life? Um, how, how can we be involved in a community with others where we're not necessarily... Um, having somebody wash our feet um, or uh, immerse us literally because of that kind of um, distancing or somebody even passing uh, us um, uh, the bread and the wine um, uh, because we're, we're doing it via Zoom or um, uh, via the church's website. How are you forming people in this moment around those kind of realities?
1: Well, it's very, it's, it's, it's very um, challenging uh, to do that. And what I what I think this has done is it has awakened a sense of the importance of the embodied life and, and this sacramental vision of following Christ. Um, and so in one way, we have tried to um, do all we can to keep and maintain connections, even in this kind of a way like we're doing right now, and recognizing that to hold to a high sacramentality is to believe that God meets us in all of these spaces. Um, Mm. and this is not the ideal. Absolutely not yet. um, God is still present with us and, uh, and can use all of these things, um, to lead us, um, into the, the life of God and the joy of God and the peace of God. So while these things for me are not ideal and in, in incredibly limiting, um, I think God still yet meets us in these spaces here. Uh, I've seen significant and heard significant stories over the past uh, 10 months or so since we've been in this way in our congregation where people have um, established community and Mm. have grown in their life in Christ in this kind of format. Uh, But what I think it has also done for us is um, awakened us to the importance of, that kind of proximity that we long for. Um, The the laying on of hands, the the shaking of hands, the hugs. I recognize there's lots of single people who come to New Life who, you know, I have two children that I'm able to hug on a regular basis and kiss Mm. on a regular basis, my wife. And there's so many people at New Life who don't have that and they are aching for that kind of proximity. So more than anything, I think what it has done is um, it has made us hungry for that level of incarnation and mm-hmm. life together. Um, recognizing that even this, though this is not ideal, God's still meeting us. And yeah. um, and that's what we're discovering here um, in our context over the past year. So not ideal, God's still meeting us and uh, longing for a return when we can be back with one another, passing the bread and the cup, laying on the hands, anointing people with oil, um, and hopefully i'm trying to get a basin of water at the entrance of my church so i could oh, yeah. can remember our baptism Let's yeah well wow, that's great for it i don't know but uh, that's uh cool. we'll see <laughs> that's very really cool that's cool uh,
2: pivoting a little bit not significantly but i'm, I'm thinking about um, this new this book that that recently came out and um, and number one uh, what it's i mean you already know um, the responses people have just been um, It's just been powerful and significant for so Mm -hmm. many folks um but but i'm curious like you know i mean i went through um undergrad seminary patient you know and of course everyone gets richard foster the celebration of life right and there's like these like white men who just like own the field of spiritual contemplative life right um why did you feel like you wanted to write this book um and spe- especially as we're the previous conversation you said around your own social location and identity yeah. and experience, like um, how would you describe what your book is doing in light of all these classics that already are out there?
1: I love the classics, I've learned from them, um, but what I wanted to do in this was provide a vision of formation that, and discipleship that resists formational compartmentalization. And when, when I think about it, it's, it's often the case that, um, you know, I, I have been at least in three different spaces in terms of my life. I, I've been in the, the Pentecostal space, the more classic evangelical space, and various progressive spaces. And it's often the case that uh, each space, each environment emphasizes one thing, and it's, it's right experiences, right thinking, right action. And uh, yeah. I want Right. I want the experiences that open me up to the power of God mm. and the grace of God. I want the kind of uh, theological reflection and taking seriously the scriptures and my exegesis and my hermeneutics. I-, I want to be engaged in right action and justice and mercy and compassion. And so, in one sense, I saw far too many, too much compartmentalization. As it pertained to formation. So, what I was trying to do in the book, number one, is offer a paradigm where we could hold things together that are often not held together. And so, the five values I write about are contemplative rhythms, you know, racial justice, interior Mm -hmm. examination, sexual wholeness, and missional presence. And I wanted to, it's often the case that uh, those things are not held together, uh, which is why the one of the controlling images for me in the book is the red uh, the redwood um trees mm. and the root systems there where i went to san diego to, to san francisco to preach and we in the redwoods and uh first time being there and uh i remember hearing a pastor get up and talk about the, those roots go deep but what makes these redwood trees soar high is they're part of a root system where they're intertwined with one another, which enables them to grow high. And I thought that's the vision of formation that I want. I want this interconnection and intersection of various streams and traditions to be held together so that those who are working for justice uh, have a contemplative life and they're speaking out of that place. Those who are trying to wrestle with matters of race are doing so from a place of interior examination and contemplation. Uh, that were holding these things together. And so I saw all of the spiritual formation classics and I thought, I don't think anyone has talked about matters of race and racism from a formational perspective mm-hmm. or, or tried to integrate um, uh, emotional health and the monastic mm-hmm. life. So this was my uh, attempt at offering an ambitious vision of formation that holds together many different streams.
0: And, and none of them talk about Prince, sexuality, and spirituality. <laughs> so that, that, that's one of your, your great gifts to, uh, to the to modern genre the of spiritual prince. formation. <laughs> is that uh, Dallas Willett never talked about uh, Prince. I don't
1: think that. And and I have a part where I talk about Ice Cube as well. I don't think Richard. That's Foster right. There,
0: <laughs> that's so, uh... and they're not going there. They're not going there. <laughs> <laughs> Rich, um, I loved what you mentioned uh, earlier in terms of our Lord's baptism. And um, uh, um, after receiving um, those words spoken over him, um, this is my son who I'm well pleased, listen to him, um, uh, is is then sent out into the desert Mm. for temptation. And I I love that your sermon Sunday, um, all with alliteration, actually named some of those aspects. Uh, The way that your book seeks to to integrate um, an understanding um, of white supremacy as a principality and power that um, offers uh, a fake spiritual formation in a different way of being that is actually Mm -hmm. um, contesting our baptism. Um, I I would love to have you speak to some of those temptations that um, uh, the church um, uh, in your location or elsewhere is facing. as we move um, from what we hear from the father is what's been spoken over the son in the power of the spirit, uh, but get ready for the wilderness. And um, Mm -hmm. this is the stuff. Um, Would you spell some of those aspects out for us explicitly as you see them in your context?
1: Well, in our context, I mean, again, Jesus goes into the waters of baptism. The voice of the, the father is, spoken over him and then immediately uh he's sent into the wilderness and the spirit leads him into the wilderness uh for a kind of it, it seems like a, a training of the soul for mm-hmm. the kind of ministry that he's going to engage in and uh you know now and gives henry now gives a wonderful framework of these temptations of relevance and to be spec to be relevant spectacular and powerful that's now uh, framing of it turn this stone into bread that's relevance mm. turn jump from the temple that's being spectacular angels will catch you and bow down and and I'll give you all the kingdoms and that's power and it's essentially what the evil one was trying to get Jesus to do was to uh, live from a different place a different center a different allegiance mm-hmm. a different identity and in my context I, I think what we're seeing right now Uh, is this uh, anxiety about power and who's in control and who's shaping the narrative, failing to see that historically Christianity has flourished most when it's been on the margins of society. That's just the story of the church, not when it's in control. And so I have tons of, I mean, our church is very diverse uh, on you know, 75 nations represented, economically diverse, educationally diverse, generationally diverse, politically diverse, theologically diverse. Uh, But the places where I think greatest temptations happen is, um, are are the Christians in the world shaping the world in in the way that they want them to? Or they want, you know, uh, are the stories and the narratives and the symbols um, being widely accepted and to the degree that is widely accepted and shaping the culture, they feel okay. And to the degree that it is not and being marginalized, or I mean, although fake, you know, I call it kind of like fake Christian persecution is insufferable to me. So, um, mm. so they, they just because uh, the symbols and the stories are not uh, central in the way that society's order, that somehow that's persecution, uh, which drives me nuts. But uh, I think. I've had to remind the church on a regular basis because of which is why you know biden's coming to be president and a lot of people are anxious uh and in the church what does this mean for the church and so i think those are the temptations of the wilderness that if, if where are we finding our allegiance and our power from is it from uh you know the uh it's often the case that the evangelical kind of version of pentecost sunday uh, is uh, you know when the Oval Office comes upon you, you shall receive powers, that kind of thing. <laughs> and um, and I think that's what we are called to resist on a regular basis. So I see that yeah. on Facebook, I see it a lot. Not so much on Twitter. My congregation is not really on Twitter; they're on Facebook, you know. Uh, and I see it on Facebook. Um, but I, I do think it's those temptations that now and articulates of relevance of being spectacular and being powerful uh, especially in this political moment, uh, Mm -hmm. that I had to remind our congregation, we're going to be okay. Our allegiance is not to any of these things. Our allegiance is to Jesus Christ. Um, so yeah, I mean, Jared, I'm not sure if I'm answering it in a satisfactory way, but that that's some of the things that come to mind in this moment.
0: Yeah, mate. No, I, I think I just really appreciate you spelling it out. Um, it drew and i were talking about this the other day but it's the jesus 2020 flags that were waved as this domestic terror attack happened in um you know yeah both your backyards and the the jesus save signs and um there there is a there's a very real spiritual formation that people have undergone um Mm -hmm. that slaveholder religion is alive and well Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh I'm just trying to, um, with so much of that being uh, uh, shared internationally, how how do we dissect and discern what it is to, to take our, um, our baptism seriously that instead of actually paying attention to the witness of people who are actually being persecuted right now, which is like a mm-hmm. very real... Um, reality, and they're often in the detention centres that line America's borders, um, uh, and the detention centres which are offshore on Australia's borders. Are people who um, are, are sisters and brothers because of their witness to Christ have mm. undergone real persecution, have seen family members killed, and yet you have like middle class people who are feeling uh, so deeply threatened and anxious um, uh, because their neighbour with a different narrative feels uh, permission to share that as well, and that's a very strange yeah. moment to be living through,
1: which is why I think one of the as a pastor we did um, uh, five or six weeks of preaching on on God politics in the church before the election, right. and one of the tasks that I had was to help us understand you know the logo for our church is an iceberg, and uh you know we wanted mm. to get beneath the surface and Uh, what is informing the way we see the world? What's informing uh, our vote? And I listed a whole bunch of things in terms of uh, the the various motivations and chief among them in the conversations that I've had with congregants is fear. And as a Mm -hmm. pastor, my job is to help people to identify and resist the fears that often shape the way that we want to yield power, uh, Mm -hmm. in the world. So I I think the pastoral task in this moment is to help people name and in the name of Jesus resist the fears that are, um, uh, you know, compelling us to respond and act in ways that are inconsistent with the gospel. So I, I think it sounds as, as as simple as that, but I, I think that's a significant part of the pastoral task in this moment, helping people to navigate their deepest anxieties and fears. And if we can do that, I think I, I think we can help people to live more faithfully to allegiance to Jesus, because it is fear that's going to move people out of allegiance to Jesus for their own security and comfort uh, in wherever else it can be found, uh, in politicians, in particular parties, in economics, whatever it is. So. Uh, I, I think the pastoral task is to help people navigate their fear, which is slow and um, uh, take. It, it takes a lot of time and space to do that, which is why I'm very concerned about the church in this country. You know, Thomas Merton talks about efficiency being the greatest danger to the spiritual life. Yeah. And uh, to navigate our fears in this way, it takes time. That's not efficient. We could be doing a whole lot more, but I'm I'm afraid that. Uh, we have a lot of efficiency to be the primary um, operating system of how we do discipleship and formation, which is leading to a lot of shallow Christians Mm. offering allegiance to other things than Jesus.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's a word. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And that fear, I mean, I think I've said it often that, you know, that persecution kind of, you know, um, narrative, is flowing out of a feeling, right? There's something is happening, which is um, they're being decentralized, right? Um, And naming that as marginalization. Um, But it's that fear of losing and shifting and disorientation uh, that could be, if they could let go of that fear and slow down and see what's actually going Mm. and receive the stories of their neighbors, right? Um, Mm. It could actually become... Um, a joy it could actually become yeah. excitement for what's possible for for the broader neighborhood and the thriving and flourishing of more people beyond oneself and one's own experience and so I think that um yeah there's so much driving folks and there is so much inner work that needs to be done if we're going to help people tell more truthful stories for themselves right um yeah. and even just earlier I um in like fact I don't know if that was the best I there's a well I, someone I know um, peripherally um, who's formerly a pastor was on Facebook sharing um, a semi conspiracy theory. They weren't like full blown, but they were, they were on their way. Let's just say it like that. Um, they were on their way. Um, and, and so I shared it with someone else who knows them better than I do i um, just like, what is going on? You know, like folks, <laughs> I think that we, we would have hoped more for this particular person. Yeah. But it's just so captivating, it seems. It just, it's just mm. powerful right now, drawing people in, even folks sometimes that many people would not have expected are getting caught up um, in it. Yeah.
1: And I think, you know, it's, it's that fear. But, but again, circling back to baptism, you know, Paul talks about you know, a baptism into, into death. Yeah, that's And right. you know, when when Bonhoeffer, you know, when Bonhoeffer when Christ calls a person, he, he bids that person He's come saying, and to die. Come to die. Yeah, and yeah. um I don't, you know, framing baptism and discipleship and formation in that way, um I am I'm, I'm feeling a greater urgency to say if you're going to come to Christ, you're going to come and die.
0: That's and
1: right. And this is the way into entrance into the kingdom of God. And um and so people are surprised when they're disoriented and surprised when they have to give up something and surprised when they have to share power.
0: Mm.
1: Well, I, I think if if we have been framing it as this is a death and a series of deaths, um, I think we would be more spiritually and emotionally prepared uh, for these particular moments. But because it's not being presented like that, mm-hmm. you are going to die and die multiple times Get used to it. Uh, people are surprised whenever difficulty comes. So, um, you know, this this text for me is reminding me in this particular moment, um, uh, that to call to, to call people to follow Jesus is to come and die. Yeah, and yes, it's going to b- lead to life. This this is what yeah. Paul is getting at right there. We're raised right. from the dead to the glory of the Father. Um, but, um, resurrection cannot happen without crucifixion, and that's not just, uh bible 101 that's just that's the way we're living
0: in the world that's right yeah and it it takes real discernment for people to learn not to not to kill off in themselves which is actually Mm. god's resurrection work um Mm. and how to discern um that what we're to to die to Is the very things that killed Christ. (laughs) Like, maybe that's a helpful way to make it plain for people that um, (laughs) if it's the kind of stuff that crucified our Lord, that's not what we're baptized into. Maybe, like, yeah, yeah, Yeah. that's good. That's good. Yeah. Uh, You know, I. I, Oh, oh, you go. Sorry, Drew. You go, mate. You go.
2: No, all I was going to say was uh, I was just remembering that my I think the very. It wasn't my first sermon ever, but it was my second sermon ever. was actually uh, Romans 6, 1 through 4. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't do that much with it, right? Who knows what I was doing, <laughs> you know? But I was all into that walking in newness of life, and it sounded really good at the time. But, uh, but I'm just remembering that, um, yeah. that, that as I was reflecting and thinking about um, this text and uh, my own journey with it and where I began yeah. kind of reflecting and preaching on it. But, uh, but mm. anyway, go ahead, Jerry.
0: Oh, um, uh, Sylvia Keysmat and Brian Walsh have been important influences on me over the years. And in their um, uh, brilliant texts, um, Romans Disarmed, they um, helpfully translate um, uh, verses uh, 13 and 14, where in the NIV it talks about um, your your body as an instrument of wickedness um, versus um, giving your body to him as an instrument of righteousness. And uh, Mm. they helpfully translate it in the context of this, this passage. um, uh, um, Weapons of injustice, what it is to offer Mm. your body as a weapon of injustice. And I mean, Mm. if, if what happened at the Capitol is anything, it's a whole bunch of people who have offered their bodies as, as weapons of injustice versus what they translate um, again, as um, uh, uh, weapons uh, of injustice, as a weapon of justice or um, tools of justice? What is it for us Mm. to become a tool of justice in our world uh, versus uh, um, uh, uh, weapons of injustice? Like,
1: Mm. I see
0: how they get there in terms of the Greek, but there's something so potent about that, linking it back to verse 3 and 4, in terms of what are the outworkings of what we're dying to and resurrection life? Um, How do we stop becoming weapons of injustice and, and become tools of um, uh, righteousness or, or healing justice. That's,
1: I love that. Yeah. That's powerful.
0: Mm. Well, Rich, um, you're a blessing uh, seeing you online, uh, be it um, uh, the Insta spams um, or, or the tweets, your, um, your online pastoral game is strong. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I also appreciate your your commentary on latest NBA um, news as well. So that there's a mix of. Um, <laughs> but you are saying I understand baptism books. into death. I'm, I'm a
1: Knicks fan, right. so. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I understand. it. <laughs> really.
0: a, 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 a constant Paschal journey, you're just waiting for the <laughs> other side of that. Just waiting for the other side. Um, but mate, you're, you're, you're a gift and i very thankful for the ways that uh, you uh, are knitting together in your context, things that are a blessing the rest of the world. So thanks for your time. And um, uh, next time Josh Kelsey, Kelsey has me in New York, um, I'd love to hang out. Um, and maybe we can drag Drew a, a little north and all hang out together. That'd be fun. <laughs> That'd be nice. Yeah. That'd be- oh, yeah. Drew, you're in <laughs> Philly, right?
1: So you're not too far.
0: Well,
2: Eusper- you sure? and I'm in Harrisburg, Harrisburg now, but Harrisburg, originally from Philly. It's only two, but it's still not that far. Up, up, yeah, 78, yeah. I'm over there. My mom, my grandmom actually grew up in Queens. So we used to, way back ah, in the day, hmm. head up there, there more regularly, but it's, that's been a long time. But yeah, I would just want to reiterate what uh, Jared said. Um, always been grateful for your voice. Uh, for those that, if you look at the back of Who Will Be a Witness, you'll see um, Rich's uh Uh, endorsements Mm -hmm. in the book as well, because he's Mm -hmm. just somebody I deeply respect, um, have respected him and his voice for a very long time. So I was grateful for um, that endorsement. And so just blessings on all that you do. And hopefully, yeah, one of these days, we definitely got to connect. There's certain folks I feel like eventually you're going to and it just hasn't happened yet. But I feel like eventually we'll cross paths.
1: Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll definitely uh, make it happen. Hopefully sooner than later. That's for sure.
0: Yeah. rich other than the places that um, we just mentioned uh, where else can people find you
1: um, you know uh, Twitter uh, Instagram that's typically where, where I, I'm testing out sermon material uh, and seeing what sticks and um, and then uh, in terms of the book and you know if they want to find out more about the book and other things that I'm up to so those are and and if they want to learn more about just new life fellowship and what we're doing in Queens just newlife.nyc
0: fantastic well thanks good
1: brother well thanks guys this is my this is the first time I've done a podcast at 9 p.m. uh and so uh, my wife is away at Disney she works with Disney so she's away so I put the kids to bed uh, hopefully they're still sleeping. I don't know. I locked myself in this. so we'll, we'll see what happens when I get out of here. But uh, I think this—I think this was a success.
0: Uh, I appreciate you working to a time that's Australia-friendly instead of me getting up in the middle of the night. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have
1: conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over
0: to Patreon.com/inverse.